You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So when Jesus stood on that mountain side to speak, we need to remember who was in the audience. They were losers. They were desperately poor. They were overtaxed. They were living day to day and there was no light at the end of the tunnel. They were living under the rule and the reign of a man they didn't vote in with a Senate that they didn't prefer. They were living day to day praying for the coming of the Son of Man. The Son of Man, as Daniel prophesied. He was going to come and once again establish the throne of David and restore their nation. Israel was going to have Rome cast out by the Son of Man and they were going to have Palestine back again. The Roman government would be dismissed. And when they showed up that day, they didn't come to be taught. They didn't come prepared with notebooks and pens. They came to see if this Jesus was the one, if he was the Son of Man, the Messianic King, if He was the Messiah. And this is why what Jesus says in the first line of this sermon is so important. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Say kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, of heaven, meaning the kingdom whose headquarters is in heaven and from heaven where God dwells in his fullness and is held together by the God who reigns. This kingdom of heaven is different than the kingdom of Rome, headquartered in Rome and held together by the Caesar and Senate of Rome. Blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Christian, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven isn't frail, will never falter, and will never fail. It will never be in trouble. That is where your citizenship is anchored. And you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to be afraid of. What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is casting a vision of what it looks like to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. He's describing what it's like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The sermon presents Jesus' moral vision, which is an ethic. Say ethic. And summons us to reorder our lives after his teaching, the reordering of life after a, government, after a governing leader or after a lord or after a king, that's called a politic. Say politic. So let me say that again. The sermon presents Jesus' moral vision that's an ethic and summons us to reorder our lives after his teaching, which is by definition a politic, and is designed to prompt one to make a decision about Jesus. Do you want to stake your hope In his politics, that flows from his kingdom? Or do you want to stake your hope in a different one? You decide. So we're led to see that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is outlining the politics and ethics of the kingdom of God. 
It's ethics because it has to do with morality and values. It's politics because it has to do with what it means to order one's life in accordance to the kingship of the king of kings in the kingdom of heaven. We're led to see the politics and the ethics of the kingdom of God and everything, everything that Jesus does and says is going to have its commentary in the Sermon on the Mount. This is arguably the most important sermon in the entire New Testament. It's for, for no other reason, Peter, Paul, James, and John all take their ethical cues from this message. The Sermon on the Mount is about witnessing to the world the politics of God's kingdom as a protest as a protest to the world's oppressive, false narratives of consumerism, anxiety, fear, violence, and self-preservation that dominate social discourse or society and everybody's laying conversations. Sermon on the Mount says there's another way to do life. And this is the way to do life because of God's love and because Jesus is the King And if he's the king of a kingdom, which is a monarchy that requires a government, he is the government, requires an ordered way of life that is a politic. And out of that politic flows an ethic, a values, a morals, that people who ascribe to the kingship of the king must learn to adopt. And this Sermon on the Mount says that society's obsession with image, success, self-preservation, American exceptionalism, and personal affirmation does not align with God's politics or does not align with His way of governing His people. It's the way of life that God intended this Sermon on the Mount and we can live this life. The sermon presents this moral vision and summons to reorder our lives in light of the lordship of the King of Kings. But before we move on to talk more about this Sermon on the Mount, I need to say something about other interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, read the Sermon on the Mount in a way that began to paint the picture of how the Sermon on the Mount has been read the last 300, 400 years, which is contrary, actually, to the way the Sermon on the Mount was read before Luther. And that's important to know. See, Martin Luther read the Sermon on the Mount as to tell us that this is the standard of God's life and what it means to follow God, but it is set so high that, it's in, that human beings are incapable of living it Therefore, the Sermon on the Mount is given to us so we will simply see how despicable we really are and how desperately we need God. So that we will, in his words, throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. And if you think about it, I get that interpretation because the idea of loving enemies and blessing those who persecute you, and if they want to sue you, give them your coat also, is not an ethic we so quickly run to. But I believe Luther was mistaken. And I believe Luther was mistaken in that interpretation because of the words of Jesus. Which at the end of this sermon, Jesus gives us a story that eventually becomes a Sunday school song. Matthew 7 verse 24 he says, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, say acts on them, will be like a sensible man who built his house on the rock. 
The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, say, does not act on them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed, and its collapse was great. See, the emphasis of the sermon is not understanding, but doing. It is a set of ethics, a way of doing, of living, of behaving that is right and moral and good and aligns with the rule of God as king. Now, by ethics, I mean the word that comes from the ancient Greek, ethikos, meaning values or morals arising from a habit. It's a way of life. This sermon is direction for practical living. It is practical direction toward living life in God's kingdom. And see, Jesus is not apolitical. Quite the contrary. Jesus is intensely political. And by politic, and I've discussed this before, I mean the ancient Greek word politikos, which has its rooted meaning in the Greek word polis, which means the state or community as a whole. And to give you a short definition, a very simple definition, one that Plato and Aristotle embraced and presented to us in light of politics, a simple definition would be the rule by which a people live an orderly life. Jesus has his own politics. And they cannot be made to serve the interests of any other political agenda. As pastor and theologian Eugene Peterson has said, the gospel of Jesus Christ is more political than anyone imagines, but in a way no one guesses. See, no modern day political party, whether Republican, Democratic, Libertarian, or Green, or any other, will have any intention of seriously adopting the politics Jesus sets forth in the sermon. They they simply cannot. And it has nothing to do with church and state. Modern day politics is a contest to gain power and is not beyond the use of coercive force. But Jesus rejects that method. Jesus, as king of a kingdom, a governing reality to which all Christians have pledged allegiance, has decreed a different kind of politics. A rule by which citizens of this kingdom should live in order to create an orderly life. And it is found comprehensively in this sermon. Jesus' politics and ethics offer a way of living that is grounded in the truth of heaven as revealed in him and the life he lived. And the politics of the Sermon on the Mount are antithetical to the political interests of an economic and military superpower because an ideology is at work here. And we talked about ideology two weeks ago. And ideology is at work today. And it uses and reduces Christian to an adjective subjugated to a greater pronoun of left or right. And this has been my concern with the so-called Christian right and Christian left. Christian isn't an adjective to be placed in submission to a pronoun that supports an ideology that upholds an ethic that eventually runs contrary to the ethics of God's kingdom. Christian's not an adjective. Christian's a person who follows the Christ. Jesus did not call his disciples to enforce his politics and ethics, only embody it. In the politics of Jesus, 
The world will be changed by a different kind of power, one of self-giving love, a non-coercive love. It's not the task of the church to change the world by legislative force or coercive power demonstrated through some sort of rage-filled so-called war against culture. Listen, Christian. It's the task of the church to be the world changed by Christ. Do you understand? To offer love to the loveless, hope to the hopeless, welcome to the excluded, embrace to the marginalized. The task of the politics of the kingdom of God is that the church will be the world that has been changed. My world has changed. Your world has changed. Let's be that world. And it will change the world. To become a community of truth that embodies the politics of Jesus by practicing self-giving love. Self-giving love. That reasons with the world through faithful presence. Humble rhetoric. And if need be, courageous martyrdom. But never by coercive force. Those who adopt the politics of Jesus and the ethics of God's kingdom will become, as Jesus said in the beginning of his sermon in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 to 16. I encourage you to look at it here. He says, You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. A city, a polis, a politic. You are the light of the world. And then he says, let your light shine before men. Let it light. Don't let it shine. Don't force it to shine. Don't make it shine. Don't, don't position it to shine to jockey and knock other people out. Just let it shine. Let it shine all the time. Let it shine. Let it shine. <laughs> before Jesus gives any commands in this sermon, it's important that you notice something. It's often overlooked. Before Jesus gives any commands, it's important to see that he starts out with blessings. Look at that. Just take that in from our Lord. The politics of Jesus offers a blessing before issuing a summons for doing. Before Jesus commands a single thing, he says, blessed are you. Eight blessings covering all spectrums of human life, right? Blessed are you. God knows you. He is present with you. Blessed are you. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit. Say poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. In the Hebrew, that is the anawim. Say anawim. Anawim is a Hebrew word used in the Old Testament, which would include Jesus' audience here to describe a very specific group of people. Now, the Anawim, the poor in spirit, are the people that a dominating nation would not want. In other words, when a nation would come and overtake Israel, they would take the able-bodied people and then not the other people. The people that were not able-bodied, they didn't want. So usually the elderly, the children, the vulnerable, the marginalized, they didn't want any of them. Those people are translated needy or poor in your Hebrew Bibles, in your Old Testament. That word is Anawim. Another word for anawim would be losers. And Jesus is saying, blessed are the losers. Blessed are the ones that nobody else wants. 
Blessed are you because you're not lost on God, because life with God is very possible for you. Blessed are you because God loves you, and despite what the religious establishment says, He wants you. Despite what the Roman government says, He wants you. Despite what other nations say, He wants you. The world may see you as a pathetic loser, but God says you are His beloved and His blessings are yours. Blessed are you, the poor in spirit. And He starts there. That is subversive. That is a new ethic. Or is going to create a new ethic. Because now the losers can live into a life that is powerful and profound and eternal. And if God says, blessed are the losers, why in heaven's name would I think otherwise? As one of his children. See, that creates an ethic. Now. So now I need to be concrete and direct. Because I told you I would. My elders asked me to be. As if I'm probably not direct enough. I need to be concrete. So what I'm about to do is affirm what some of you believe in me, in my lunacy, in my craziness. And what I'm also about to do is probably debunk what some of you have believed to be my lunacy and my craziness. But it's important that I share with you how I believe the politics of the kingdom of God and the ethics that it ascribes is forming my life in my reading of the Sermon on the Mount. And forgive me for all the my, I just need you to know this is Fred Ligon wrestling with the politics of Jesus, and I need you to see it so you can be invited into the wrestling with the politics of Jesus as well and not be complicit to the politics of the donkey and the elephant or the porcupine, if you're libertarian. One distinct, Jesus, one distinct difference between Jesus' politics and the politics of today is that Jesus is radically and comprehensively pro-life. Comprehensively pro-life. From biological life to natural death to eternal life. See, pro-life as a guiding principle and not just a slogan is a suitable way to describe the nature of Jesus' politics and the ethical ethics of God's kingdom. And here's why I say that. Because when you hear this Sermon on the Mount, you notice at least one thing. Jesus stands for all that promotes life and human flourishing. And he stands against all that conspires with death and human oppression. I need to repeat that. When you read this sermon and you watch his ministry, Jesus stands for all that promotes life and human flourishing, shalom, wholeness, and stands against all that promotes or conspires with, colludes with, leans toward death, or human oppression. And I believe that in accordance to the Sermon on the Mount, followers of Jesus should be for all that promotes life and opposed to all that conspires with death. And this is why I, Fred Ligon, as a child of God and citizen of the kingdom of God, living in this good country, 
This is why I cannot support the death-friendly practices modern society wants to offer me through various positions held by both major parties of our political system. If as a follower of Jesus, I should be for all that leans toward life and opposed to all that conspires with death, I cannot support abortion, capital punishment, torture, war, predatory capitalism, unfair housing practices, keeping health care unaffordable, environmental exploitation, unchecked proliferation of guns, refusing the immigrant, neglecting the poor, the disabled, the mentally ill, or the elderly. And that is how the politics of Jesus is working itself out in my life. And I realize... I realize that modern politics and ethics and some of you will also attempt to take any one of these issues and impose upon me some party political ideology despite the fact that if you take each one of these issues you'll find that they fit in any one of those aisles. And I have long made my peace with that. I've had to. I've long made my peace with that because my only aim as God is my witness, is to pledge all my allegiance to the Lamb of God, not the donkey or elephant. I am not focusing, focusing, obsessing on the coercive means of legislation. Now, I'm not suggesting that Christians should not vote or work towards seeing laws change. Both are a great privilege and freedom in our good country, and I encourage all to do so. Are y'all hearing me on that? I want any emails on that. And email me on other things, but not that one. Because I've been an activist for years, and I have worked to see systemic injustices change, and sometimes that requires new laws, or laws to be changed. So to be clear, I'm not suggesting that voting or working to see laws change are out of line with God's kingdom. I am only suggesting that focusing on this, or worse, obsessing over it with worry and fear and anxiety and vitriol and name-calling and backbiting and division and malice and all that is contrary in every breath of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Because you, Christian, are blessed because the kingdom of heaven is yours. And when we do that, when we focus and obsess, we will find ourselves being led down the path of seeking to control or coerce others, even if it means killing them. And that leads us away from what the church is principally and primarily and always summoned to do. And that is to witness to the politics of Jesus by seeking to embody these ethics in our homes, our neighborhoods, workplaces, classrooms, and all other places we frequent where people are within proximity and within our reach. And when I, Fred Ligon, husband to Allison and father to Ian, and child of God principally and primarily, and citizen of the kingdom of God, who has been for whatever reason blessed to have dropped onto planet Earth in these beautiful United States of America. When I find myself confronting a choice that runs against the politics of Jesus, whether it be abortion or neglecting the poor or disabled, I try my best to follow the ethics of Jesus and respond in a way that I believe would honor His Lordship 
and the person in front of me who radically disagrees. Because they are made in the image of God too. And they are not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. To believe anything else is to be played. And I'm not getting played. Even though I'll be played. Which is why I need Jesus. I find it difficult enough, y'all, for me as a Christian to embody the ethics of Jesus and to adopt his politics as my politic. I don't need to try and enforce it on other people. I find it hard enough to love my enemies. I find it hard enough to want to give my coat when they want to take my shoes. I find it hard enough to turn the other cheek. I find it hard enough to give to those who ask without expectation of return. I find it hard enough to not... Focus on the speck in your eye while ignoring the plank in mine. I find that hard enough. I need people who are on that journey to help me live that life. And I think, therefore, as a minister and pastor of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the church has all of her work cut out for her just to embody those politics without trying to figure out how to enforce it on everybody else. We got to hold each other to it. That's hard enough. I have to come to the table every week. Because if I didn't, I wouldn't choose to be with some of you. And some of you, you wouldn't choose to be with some of me because I'm just your kid's crazy uncle in the kingdom. You know, like, ooh, what does Fred believe? You know, like, like I just, you, you got to deal with me now. Like, ooh, got to take table with the crazy uncle today. I mean, that's where this is. I mean, we're in not for the table. Will we choose to be here with the people we're with? I need you to notice that a community of truth committed to following Jesus as redeeming Savior and Lord embodies the politics and ethics of God's kingdom by practicing self-giving love that reasons with the world through faithful presence, humble rhetoric, and if need be, courageous martyrdom, never by coercive force, because no matter what happens, we are blessed. And so I turn your attention to the end of the sermon, both mine and Jesus's. You remember the wise man who built his house upon the rock and the foolish man who built his house upon the sand? What did those two men have in common? What, Dave? The house. They had a life. What else did they have in common? The storm came to both. The winds pounded both. The rains poured on both. And it threatened both. The winds of suffering and the rains of trial came to both, but which one stood? The one who adopted the politics of Jesus. The one who acted on the words of the Sermon on the Mount. He's the one who stood the suffering. He's the one who stood underneath the trial. The one who doesn't adopt the politics of Jesus. The one who doesn't adopt the ethics of the kingdom of God. The one who falls in line with social politics of a modern day society and situation ethics. The one who falls in line with those and the ones who try to explain away the truth that Jesus offers. The ones who refuse to wrestle with the things of Jesus or the one who, refu- who refuses to wrestle with the things of Jesus and chooses to wrestle with another human being. That's the person that when the suffering and the trials come will have their house fall to the ground and be washed away by the shifting sand of fear and anxiety because of where the world or the country or my neighborhood or my home is going. And I don't want that for us. That is the only reason the elders and I 
chose this series in the hope that when the suffering comes, and it will, houses will stand because they're built on the rock that is the truth of Christ and not on the politics of simply a declaration of independence or a constitution, but of the Sermon on the Mount as expressed and lived and modeled through the life of Jesus. You and I have been given a freedom by God. We've been given freedom by God to choose which political system we adopt. The politics of our country matters. And you need to hear me say that to you. But it doesn't matter nearly as much as our country would like us to believe. Not as citizens of the kingdom of God. Either way, you and I are free to choose whether we'll pledge allegiance to the Lamb of God that was slain for the sins of the world or pledge allegiance toward a donkey or elephant. And by pledge of allegiance, I want to be clear with what I mean. I mean what the phrase means. I mean offering a wholehearted devotion and unconditional commitment to. So let me say again. By pledge of allegiance, I mean offering a wholehearted devotion and unconditional commitment to. We get to choose. And Jesus gives us that choice. We can pledge allegiance to the Lamb, or we can pledge allegiance to something else. But one of the things he said in his politic, you can't serve two kings, and you can't be allegiant to two masters. I pray that the revelation of God's love for us in this beautiful life, scandalous death, and glorious resurrection of Jesus our Lord will be enough to compel us to reorder our lives in light of his politics and ethics. I pray that his love will compel us to pledge all our allegiance, to give our wholehearted devotion and unconditional commitment to the Lamb of God so we'll have no allegiance left to pledge to anything else. My hope is that you will know that you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. And you need not worry. You need not fret. You are not alone. God is not surprised. And come November 9th, Jesus will still be Lord. And we still have work to do in embodying the ethics and the politics of the kingdom of God. You will still have neighbors that if they were to die, they would go and spend an eternity away from God. You still have the poor and the mentally ill and the intellectually disabled and the marginalized to still love. You still have enemies to learn how to pray for and bless rather than curse and fight. We still have to embody what Jesus has called us to. November 9th and every day until then, until Jesus returns, puts all the other kingdoms to shame, puts them all to the end, and the kingdom of God is the only one the world will ever know.